This is Steady Habits, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. It's where we take a look at life here in the land of steady habits, what works, what doesn't, and how to make things work just a little bit better. Good evening, and welcome to tonight's special Connecticut Mirror event with Supreme Court reporter, essayist, and analyst extraordinaire Linda Greenhouse. She's a Pulitzer Prize winner and one of the leading court watchers in our nation's history. We're thrilled to have her back again this year, and we're going to be talking about this momentous court term And we'd like to take some of your questions as well here at the Connecticut Mirror. We'd also like to extend a very special welcome to guests who are joining us tonight from the statewide nonprofit news publication Spotlight PA. Welcome to all the folks in my home state of Pennsylvania. And thanks to Gabby DeBenedictus, who is running tonight's show. Linda Greenhouse, first of all, I'd just like to welcome you back. We couldn't remember if this is the third or the fourth time that you've done this, but it's so good of you to give up a little bit of your time in the middle of the summer to talk about these court terms. Good to see you. Happy to be with you, John. So there was one point near the end of this term that there were a lot of pieces being written about a leftward tilt on this court that was actually disappointing some conservatives. Uh, I got a newsletter from The Atlantic one day that said the court is conservative, but but not MAGA. Uh, and then at the very end, three monumental rulings dropped right at the end of the session that I know you've written about, and they have really helped to solidify a series of some conservative principles that the Roberts Court has been working on for the last 18 years. So before we get into some real specifics here about these individual court cases, What's the big picture view you have of what happened during this term? So I think what you're referencing, well, you're referencing two things. One, the commentary at the end of the term, which was um, ignorant, I, I have to say. Um, it, it, it was written from the perspective of one term plus one day. That's not how things work. And obviously the court rejected during the term a couple of truly far out propositions. One was that the so-called independent state legislature doctrine, which holds that under a reading of the constitution that has never been adopted in more than 200 years, uh, state Supreme courts have no power to supervise or judge what state legislatures do when it comes to elections. The court rejected that. Okay, that doesn't mean they're liberal. It means they've got their heads screwed on correctly, right? (laughs) And then uh, there was a very important Voting Rights Act case from Alabama, in which many people thought, and I have to confess I was one of them, that this would be the moment when the court would kind of put the final nail in the coffin of the Voting Rights Act by essentially getting rid of the half of the Voting Rights Act that was left after the Shelby County case back in 2013, which got rid of an important half of it, that didn't happen. That did not happen. The court didn't buy the notion that by being aware of the racial impact of the way districts are drawn, the legislature somehow violates the constitution. That's never been an accepted principle. That was what was on offer from the Republicans in Alabama, in, in this case, and the court rejected, that does not mean the court's liberal. It means they had their head screwed on and they have, and John Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, who wrote that opinion, had a sense of what the country needed at this moment. So that's 
to to you know cr- criticize what was out there. My take, and I think you were referencing a piece I had in the New York Times earlier this week, where I said, "Let's suppose you're a you're a Skoda's Rip Van Winkle, and you went to sleep in September of 2005 uh, when Chief Justice Roberts was confirmed to that position, and you woke up uh, last week." as the court finished its term, and what would you find? You would find a constitution transformed, and you would find that in those 18 years, the court had basically run a checklist of the goals of the conservative legal movement that had been unfulfilled when John Roberts became chief justice, and you know what? They've all been fulfilled. And the affirmative action case at the very end of this latest term, uh, you know, was was the final shining star of uh, fulfillment f- uh, from the conservative point of view. So it's been a, a very consequential period in the history of the court and, and, and the country. And there's no way of describing the court other than saying it's filled by a bunch of smart lawyers who have an agenda, and that agenda has been largely fulfilled. You, you talked with me a couple of years ago. I remember you using the term uh, the, the Roberts Court's project, the idea that there is a, an overarching goal that the chief justice has to get to these various principles. And one thing that I, I have read, certainly by different court watchers and people who are taking a look, look at this term, is, is that uh, John Roberts has perhaps a more methodical way of looking at his, his role and the court, then some of the more conservative folks who sit on it with him, that he has a plan over time. And that, as as you said, he essentially has now gotten to most of those principles that he'd set out to, to, to get done. Is yeah. that correct? Uh, yes. I mean, he's in a fascinating position. He's chief justice of the United States. It's the Roberts court. His name is on the door. He became the figure of history the minute he took the oath of office and September of 2005. He is, in my view, just as conservative as the rest of them. But he's playing a different game because he's got his eye on the institutional welfare of the court uh, in a way that his colleagues don't all have. That's not to say that he's done anything that he doesn't believe in. Uh, but I think it has meant that he has picked his spots uh, very strategically. He's a strategist. He's not just a tactician. And so he's done things in stages. Uh, I'll take one example. Part of his project, and I'm sure it's what we talked about uh, before, is to elevate the place of religion in public life, in civic life. Whereas uh, Sam Alito, part of the conservative coalition on the court, uh, would like to do that all at once, Uh, you know, whatever the consequences, uh, John Roberts has done it in stages. He's done it in stages, some of them so subtly that I think it's fooled a whole lot of people as he step by step has created new doctrine that basically says that Anytime religion doesn't get its seat at the table, maybe its seat at the head of the table, uh, that's an equal protection violation. 
that that there has to be an equality between religion and non-religion. That has not been our view in the country. That's not really consistent with how law has evolved, but that is how it has evolved in the in the Roberts Court with um, you know, major consequences yet to come, including things like, you know, can taxpayers be basically forced to subsidize religious education through uh, paying for religious charter schools, which after all, charter schools are public schools, that kind of thing. That's yet to come, but the court has tiptoed right up to the verge of that. Just a quick follow-up on that point, Linda. Uh, Another piece of commentary that I've read from more than one quarter is that this idea that the Roberts court that he has controlled, his name's on the door, he has these plans, it's been in some ways hijacked by the more conservative wing of the court that, uh, for instance, just Justice Clarence Thomas and Sam Alito have, have taken over control of the direction of the court. Do you not see it that way? Uh, no, I don't. I think it would have been possible to see it that way a year ago. Was mm. of course the 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 case that defined last term, and I think that you know defines the court today in American politics. Really, uh, was the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe against Wade and and eradicated the constitutional right to abortion. That was an Alito opinion, and the Chief Justice didn't sign it. He was not on board with that. Uh, so it certainly looked like control had passed from him to the five justices, it looked that way, to his right. Uh, this term didn't look that way, though. Uh, the chief justice wrote the affirmative action case that gets rid of affirmative action in university admissions. He wrote the Alabama Voting Rights Act case um, that, you know, o- over the dissent of uh, Alito and, and, and Thomas, uh, that said, no, the Voting Rights Act still has teeth and we apply it here and we adhere to our precedents. So um, it's still very much the Roberts Court, in my opinion. Uh, as you talk about the <clears throat> the role, though, that religion plays increasingly on in the court, let, let's get to one of these um, very important cases. This is uh, the, the 6-3 ruling that a, a web designer has a First Amendment right to refuse to create sites for same-sex weddings despite a state law that prohibits discrimination based on sexual orientation. This is, as I said, one of these three sort of monumental rulings that came right at the at the end of the term. Maybe you can break this uh, apart for us a little bit, Linda, and how you feel this particular ruling is in line with some of what the Roberts Court has been doing over the course of the last several years. Right. So to provide a context for it, so as everybody knows, in 2015, the court recognized your right to same-sex marriage. That was the Obergefell case. So the question is, going forward, um, we have many couples, I think a million or more, uh, in same-sex marriages today. And uh, what are their rights to be treated as equals in the commercial marketplace? So back at the time of Obergefell, Justice Alito wrote a very bitter dissenting opinion. And he said, basically, uh, this opinion, this decision is going to make social pariahs out of anybody who still believes in traditional marriage, right? Since then, he and Justice Thomas, and then a kind of a latecomer, Justice Gorsuch, 
have been looking for what I've come to call an Obergefell victim. They want to find somebody who can claim that they've been injured by the fact that same-sex marriage is now recognized as part of the Constitution. It's kind of hard to find that person because, you know, if you don't want to have a same-sex marriage, don't have one, and it really doesn't hurt anybody else unless they are so imbued with the religious feeling that God meant there to only to be marriages between people of different sexes, uh, that they they live in a sense of perpetual offense. I mean, I think that describes Justice Alito, frankly. They finally found, well, they tried to find an Obergefell victim back a few years ago with the baker who wouldn't bake. People might remember the Masterpiece Cake Show. That didn't quite work. Uh, that didn't lead to the decision that the real conservatives on the court wanted because Justice Anthony Kennedy was still on the court and he wouldn't go along because he had written the Obergefell decision, actually. Now comes this web designer uh, and she says, uh, I'm a web designer. I've never yet gotten into the business of designing wedding websites and people with children or grandchildren may know this is now a very popular way to celebrate <laughs> one's wedding on a special website. But I'd like to get into that business, she said. But I'm a Christian, and that means that God tells me that I cannot do anything to support same-sex marriage. So I want to put on my own webpage, uh, I want to advise people, uh, please come to me to create your wedding website, but not if, you're, not if it's for a same-sex wedding. I can't do that. Her problem is that the state of Colorado, as you mentioned, has a very robust anti-discrimination law that applies to business, applies to commerce. And, and somebody in business cannot discriminate among their customers on the basis of race or sex or uh, sexual orientation. So she filed a lawsuit preemptively to say, um, I want to do this. Uh, I, I want a declaration that is part of my freedom of religion and my freedom of speech to do what I want to do and not serve same-sex couples. So that's the way the case, that's the context in which this case came to the court. And uh, she won by a vote of six to three in a decision by Justice Gorsuch. And you have to read the decision really carefully to understand that it's about religion. It's sort of, there's a bit of gaslighting going on. If you read it, it's all about speech, that her speech is being her, her speech would be coerced if she was forced to create a website for a same-sex wedding. Frankly, I don't understand that claim because nobody's coercing her to get into the business at all. She's not currently in the business. Well, so <laughs> I, I don't understand the claim of coercion, but that's how the decision came down. And it—it's not until you get to Justice Sonia Sotomayor's dissenting opinion very brilliant dissenting opinion is also joined by Justice Kagan and uh, Justice Katanji Brown Jackson, where uh, Justice Sotomayor says, this is the first time in history that the court has enabled a commercial enterprise to engage in discrimination. And so a, a, a bridge has been crossed here and it's a bridge that's, that enabled, that, that religion is crossing. So of course the question is, um, what happens next? I mean, this opinion, it, you know, may, maybe it's my fault. It makes no sense to me because what if 
the business owner said, you know, uh, I'm a Christian and God separated the races and I cannot design a wedding website for um, an interracial couple. Or, you know, I'm an Orthodox Jew and I don't believe that Jews should marry out of the faith and I can't design a website for a mixed religion marriage or even for an Orthodox Jew and a Reformed Jew. So, you know, where does this lead? Uh, I think it only leads to bad things and it leads to uh, a threat to our civil society as, as, as we know it. You talk about a bridge being crossed. Uh, Carol Waxman uh, posed a question here about the uh, the other bridge that you've already somewhat addressed, uh, Linda, in your commentary, which was, I always thought that a case in order to be heard by the Supreme Court had to show hardship. How and when did the court change to accept hypothetical cases? And, and that's that's part of the, I think, confusion for a lot of folks. It's not just about the religious component about it. It's also it's very odd that the court took this case in the first place and it's hard to understand that feels like another breach here and an, another floodgate is open potentially. Well, that's correct. I mean, this is the doctrine of standing. And as, uh, as our listener said, uh, the, the rule is you've got to, you've got to show an injury and you've got to show an injury that can be redressed by a court decision. You've got to show an injury that's caused by something that you're suing about. So it's it's causation, injury, and redressability. Those are the three legs of the standing stool, you might say. And the court, um, in its desire to get at some of these cases, has just kind of thrown that out. Uh, the other one was the uh, Biden student loan forgiveness uh, holding, where uh, the state of Missouri and some other states too had had uh, sued the Biden administration, saying uh, it had no authority to forgive the student loans to the extent that that policy did ten ten thousand dollars or twenty thousand um, dollars. And the question was, what's the injury to the states other than politics? These were states all with Republican attorneys general, and Missouri. There, there, there's an organization in Missouri that's sort of attached to the state that services uh, the interest on student loans. And their claim was, well, the state will ultimately be hurt because uh, if, if uh, uh, you know, portions of these loans are forgiven, there'll be less interest to service and will to service and will make less money and the less money will flow to the treasury of Missouri. And that's how Missouri has standing. No, they didn't have standing. I mean, that is so attenuated, but the court wanted to get at the issue and the court wanted to get to have its Obergefell victim. And that's what they had in the, in the wedding designer. And even though the two lower courts in the wedding design case had thrown the case out saying it's not ripe, you know, there's no injury here. There's no client here. It's nothing. Um, the court took it anyway. I got a question here from from Francis, and I would like to, in a, in a couple of minutes, get back to a little bit more detail on the student loan case. But as we're talking about religion, Francis asks, is the court interested in elevating religious belief broadly, inclusively of U.S. diversities of religions or conservative Christian religions solely? Well, I mean, I don't want to be overly inflammatory, but um, it sure looks like Christian religion solely, I have to say. Uh, because um, that's the community who's bringing these cases, and uh, you know the 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 flip that occurred um, 
two terms ago uh, during the height of COVID, uh, just after uh, Amy Barrett came on the court, where the court changed its view and said that um, uh, localities or states uh, could not limit religious services um, under the COVID restrictions unless those same restrictions were applied across the board. You know, if, if 30 people was, was the cap for uh, attending a religious service, um, 30 people had to be the cap for attending a ball game or the shopping mall or, you know, whatever. And, uh, and that was a major reach. And uh, these were cases brought 99% by uh, Christian churches. Uh, we had a question here from from James Stark. It, it's a little bit of a long question. I know I asked for short questions, but it's it's it. I, I think it gets to some things that I'd like to get to at this point in our conversation. Um, uh, he writes: results, ideology, constitutional meaning aside, how would you assess the intellectual honesty of the six member supermajority of the Supreme Court over its first two terms? Has the court honestly acknowledged when it is overruling precedent? and attempted to justify why, have the members been uh, consistent in the ways they've used their own professed principles of interpretation to decide cases? Well, I could give a short answer to a long question, which is no. And uh, I'll give some examples. Um, uh, the court has not been candid when it's been overturning precedent. Sometimes it is. I mean, in uh, in, in Dobbs, obviously, the court said, uh, Justice Leto said Roe against Wade was egregiously wrong and we're overturning it. That's one thing. But there's a way of hollowing out precedent so that uh, uh, the court doesn't go down in history as, uh, you know, wildly dispensing with, with precedent. And so one thing that interests me about the, the games that are being played right now is how candid, how honest uh, is this new majority to the actual record that's been made in cases? Because as an appellate court, uh, any appellate court is not the fact finder. Uh, that's the job of the trial court. The appellate court's view is, is to fit the facts that have been found into the law. But if you look back a year ago, at the praying coach case, people may remember uh, Coach Kennedy, who was a part-time football coach at a public high school, and he had undertaken the practice of um, commandeering the 50-yard line at the end of the game for his personal prayer, which would drive, um, you know, dozens if not hundreds of people down from the stands. It became a big circus in the middle of the football field, and the uh, the school had told him to stop. Uh, over several occasions saying, you know, you can pray any place you like at any time you like, but not on the 50-yard line at the immediate conclusion of a football game. So for a couple of weeks at the end, as he, I guess, was trying to save his job, he he kind of stopped. He prayed, but he didn't invite the crowd down. Okay, that those are the facts. But for months, this circus had been going on. So it comes up to the court. The court, of course, rules for him that he had a right to pray. Uh, and Justice Gorsuch, writing the majority opinion, gave the facts as if there had never been, like, what's the problem? There's no problem here. Just a quiet little prayer. The dissenting opinion, again, Justice Sotomayor, Justice Kagan, that they were 
and Justice Breyer at that time, uh, you know, so annoyed by this that they included in their dissenting opinion photographs of the circus that had been going on in the middle of the football field. And, you know, that was not an honest accounting by the majority of why the case was even there. So that was an extreme example, not the only example. Uh, so that question is well is is well placed, and I think the court can be, um, you know, judged not only on results. I mean, there's always going to be people that don't like the way a case comes out, but on the methodology and and the the candor, the honesty uh, with which the court goes about its business. Uh, an awful lot of people are are writing in to comment, uh, um, Ellen, Dominic, others just wondering about the role of one of the bedrock principles that we understand in America, the, the separation of church and state. How do the conservative members of this court address that sort of fundamental piece of, of American life and law when these rulings are, are put forward? Well, what, what they've done, as I suggested, is they've kind of twisted the the discourse about religion, and they've turned it into a discourse about equality. So, you know, if there's something that's good for the secular state, it's got to be equally good for religion. And this came up, um, not not so much this term, but again, a term ago, a case called Carson against Macon, which was um, a, a tuition program in the state of Maine uh, to, to subsidize uh, tuition private school tuition in those school districts that were so tiny that they didn't have their own high school. So the deal in Maine uh, was uh, to parents, if you don't have a public high school, you can send your kid to another public high school or to a private school and the state will pay the tuition except for uh, a religious school. So needless to say, this came up to the court and the court said you cannot carve out religion. That's a violation of the equality of religion. Well, what equality? We've never had a system where we've had to ask taxpayers to pay for religious education. Uh, but that's where we are. And how they reconcile that with their supposed originalist view of the Constitution going back, uh, you know, to the to the founding generation that established the principle of the separation of church and state through the, the establishment clause, one of the two clauses, establishment clause and free exercise clause of the First Amendment, how they reconcile this, I don't know. But I'm just here to say that the establishment clause has basically been erased from the constitutional conversation at the court. It's all about free exercise and it's all about equality and that something may establish religion by putting the state's finger on the scale for the sake of religion. Forget that. That's that's so 20th century. You've, you've mentioned now a, a couple of past cases uh, where education is is the crux of the matter. And we also talked briefly about this this student student loans decision, uh, the court ruling that the Biden administration's plan to wipe out some four hundred billion dollars in student debt was was not authorized by Congress. Um, so, one thing that I've read quite a 
bit in the last week or so uh, since that ruling came down, Linda, is that had this plan uh, by the Biden administration been drawn up in some different way, it would have been very hard for the court to have ruled this way. Do you think that this ruling was about, um, once again, a conservative majority trying to strike down something that they feel is not in the country's best interest, or is it about uh, a law or a plan coming from the executive branch that just wasn't drawn well enough to pass constitutional muster? Well, of course, I, you know, I don't want to presume to really understand the motivation, um, but this case was really an accident waiting to happen because uh I mean, That's well, well put, I suppose, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I make it, you know, our, our viewers have said, I'm not sure the court was wrong uh, in, in in its holding here. Um, it was a matter of statutory interpretation. And does the law that the administration claimed gave it the authority uh, to do this, uh, was that law sufficient? And the court said no, which, of course, raises the question, well, how about a different law? And the Biden administration is pivoting to a different law. Um, this falls into one of the conservative goals and, and buckets, you might say, which is um, to take a whack at the so-called administrative state, the power of the executive branch, administrative agencies to make policy. And when I say an accident waiting to happen, there have been a series of cases leading up to this point where the majority has made it quite clear that uh, unless Congress has quite explicitly authorized an administrative action, uh, we're going to say that it's a matter of separation of powers, because after all, Congress is supposed to set policy and the executive branch is supposed to carry it out. Um, we're going to say no. And they say no under something that they have recently invented a couple of years ago, didn't used to exist, called the major questions doctrine. So that is, if something presents a major question, uh, Congress has to have spoken very precisely to the agency's authorization to engage. So now, now you're going to tell us what a major question is, Linda, because I know that you know exactly what that is defined as. So uh, they haven't precisely defined it other than to basically imply um, a major question is what we say is a major question. And back a year ago, uh, when the court invalidated the so-called clean power plan, the uh, uh, Obama administration's uh, plan to limit um, smokestack emissions, um, Justice uh, Gorsuch, in a concurring opinion there, said... Um, well, how do we tell it's a major question? If it's something of great uh, political controversy, that's a good indication that it's a major question. Well, who can, who can better stir up political controversy against a Biden administration policy than, for instance, dare I say, Fox News or something like that? So it really, what, what, what this turn of events is, is really a, a flow of power away from not only executive branch, but from Congress itself toward the Supreme Court. It's the court that's going to tell us. And what's remarkable about this is until this happened, and this goes back to the earlier question, are they honest about what they're doing? Until this happened, 
for the last, um, I'd say, generation, since, since the early 1980s, uh, the court the administrative law has been governed by something called the Chevron Doctrine. It comes up in a case called Chevron, which required courts, the Supreme Court and other courts, to defer to the choices made by an administrative agency as long as those choices plausibly fit within the express authority that that, that, that agency has. It was a rule of, of deference, you know. If the, if the agency uh, has a decent case that, you know, Congress didn't say this explicitly, but this is a, our understanding of what Congress did, um, then courts are to defer. And now the default mode has flipped and courts are not are, are to not defer uh, unless they can assure themselves that uh, A, this is not a major question, and B, if it is a major question, that Congress has given explicit authority. And we know that's not how legislation works. But but isn't, I mean, isn't part of the role of Congress also, so if, if Congress sees that a federal agency run by the executive branch is overstepping in some way, Congress, it doesn't have to fall to the courts to remedy that. Congress can also change the law itself and say, here's what the EPA can do, or here's what another agency can do. I mean, that that's it within Congress's purview. Oh, oh, totally correct. And, and that's why I said what the court is doing is kind of sapping power, not only from the executive branch, but from Congress by kind of, you know, inserting itself into what ought to be a part of the legislative function, which is congressional oversight. You know, all these committees of Congress that are supposed to oversee the executive, uh, you know, they can they can do these things if Congress can do anything. Now, of course, one problem in a divided government is um, we don't expect Congress to be able to swoop in and fix problems. And the court knows that as well as as well as we do. So it's all, you know, more more power to the court. Is it, what we were just talking about about uh, the power of federal agencies that this this came up I I believe in in another ruling a uh, uh, an environmental ruling uh, the court ruling that the Clean Water Act uh, doesn't allow the EPA to regulate discharges into wetlands near bodies of water unless they have quote a continuous surface connection to those uh, waters uh, four justices uh, vote against the EPA but on some narrower grounds is this one of the types of rulings that that you're talking about here. Uh, yes, it is. And what was remarkable about that case, I mean, th this is a very age-old issue at the court. This was not a new issue. And the issue is, um, what are, uh, I'll, I'll use a kind of legal term of art, what are the waters of the United States that the government has jurisdiction over? I mean, obviously, in our federal system, the federal government doesn't swoop in over every little you know, lake and pond and whatever. I mean, these are these are local things. But if something is the waters of the United States, the Mississippi River, or something like that, obviously the federal government has has power. So, at the margins, it's maybe not. It, it it has not been clear what are the waters of the United States and this issue of wetlands that are not necessarily um, visible to the naked eye, or are not obviously connected to a body of water, whether that body of water is or is not part of the waters of the United States. Um, that, that's been a, a, a tough issue. What's remarkable about the opinion that the court issued this term was an Alito opinion, is 
it's all about um, administrative overreach. And there's not, as I believe, I don't want to exaggerate, I, but I don't think there's a single sentence in there that addresses why the EPA would have wanted to regulate wetlands, which we know are an enormously important part of the environment. There was no recognition by the majority that this is something that really matters to the health of the earth, right? You, you can you can acknowledge that it rarely matters and that it really matters and then say, but the agency went about it the wrong way. You know, that's up for debate. But to not even acknowledge why, why we've been fighting over this issue for a number of iterations at the Supreme Court and elsewhere, I just thought it was such a deficiency of, of that opinion. It just left me shaking my head. I did want to get to that that last of those important cases at the end of the term, the affirmative action uh, case, the court ruling that uh, race conscious admissions policies at Harvard uh, and the University of North Carolina uh, were unlawful. Uh, this, of course, is maybe not as momentous in the way of of the abortion case from from last year, but momentous in its own way as far as how it could change the face of education in America. G give me your sense of, of how exactly this ruling came down, Linda, and how how long this had been in the process, how long the court had been looking to, to get a case like this. Well, one of the first cases I had occasion to cover when I started writing about the Supreme Court uh, for the New York Times was the Bakke case, and that was in 1978, a long time ago. And uh, the country was really, you know, hanging on this case. It was the first affirmative action case. And, and it came down with the ruling that um, affirmative action is okay as long as it's not a hard and fast quota, but it serves an important purpose. It serves what the, the court denominated as a, as a compelling purpose. That's been contentious ever since. And for many years, uh, affirmative action was hanging by a thread at the Supreme Court. Um, due most recently, uh, back in 2003, that's not so recent anymore. Another generation has passed um, in the in the Grutter case, an opinion by the quite conservative Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, who said, um, "We find that it does still serve a compelling purpose." And, and may serve that purpose for perhaps another 25 years. That was 20 years ago. Uh, so there was really no surprise that this was at the very top of the agenda for this court. I mean, so unsurprising. But the question is, how did they get there? Um, they got there through a distorted reinterpretation of the meaning of equal protection under Brown against Board of Education. So Brown against Board of Education in 1954, desegregation case, uh, you know, was held out as one of the high moments in Supreme Court history that um, official, the official regime of segregation in the country was unconstitutional. What the court has, how the court has reinterpreted Brown is, okay, Brown says you can't count people by their race, you can't separate people by their race, and the Equal Protection Clause works both ways. So the Constitution is, quote, colorblind. 
And so affirmative action or actions that discriminate, quote, discriminate, that's a judgment term, um, you know, against white people are just as unconstitutional as um, official actions that discriminate against black people. Now, Ketanji Brown Jackson, who's the first black woman to serve on the Supreme Court, um, gave a very powerful pushback against that, both from the bench during the oral argument in, in these cases and in her dissenting opinion, uh, looking back to the actual history of the 14th Amendment, which is one of the Reconstruction Amendments after the Civil War, and, and you know, excavating uh, the meaning of it, which was to um, assist and recompense um, the former people who had been enslaved, right? And that to say that uh, the Constitution, the constitutional understanding coming out of that period is simply colorblindness per se, is um, a rewrite, distorted rewriting of American history. But that's what underlays um, this case. And, uh, you know, as I say, there was very little surprising about it. So your question is, where does it go? Um, you know, for, for most colleges that most colleges in this country do not have selective admissions, uh, they'll, they're happy to take anybody. Um, so it's, it's not so much going to change life. I think for most colleges, it certainly will in the more selective private and public colleges. Uh, but also, what does it portend beyond education? And what does it portend for efforts uh, that are not affirmative action per se, but are racially conscious outreach programs, recruitment programs, trying to widen the pool of who's interested in your institution? All that kind of stuff um, lies ahead. And, and, you know, I'm not sure I know the answers to them. It lies ahead and potentially outside the world of just of education. I, I think so. I mean, the um, the sort of dark money foundation supported effort to um, extirpate any consciousness of race from American life, if you can imagine such a thing. Um, they have their sights on uh, uh, the private sector, the private non-educational sector, and um you know, there's a lot of money and a lot of uh, momentum behind that. So, uh, so we'll see. So we have a lot of questions coming in from from people about uh, things that happened during this term, but weren't necessarily about the the court's term itself. From Nancy, why hasn't Roberts taken initiative to establish ethics rules? From Bryce, please comment on what I see as a crisis regarding Supreme Court ethics. Can they really be left to monitor themselves? based on everything that has been disclosed recently. And from William, how does the court solve its ethics problem? So I guess, first of all, Linda, uh, for those who haven't been following this closely, maybe you can just lay out what the latest is in your mind on the ethics dilemmas surrounding certain members of the Supreme Court right now, and what can the Supreme Court do about it? Yeah, so I'm, I, I'd be surprised if people hadn't been following this, because it's sort of a it's kind of the low-hanging fruit at this at this point. But as people know, it turns out that uh, Justice Clarence Thomas and Justice Sam Alito have been uh, the beneficiaries of um, 
uh, you know, nice things that have happened to them, uh, flights on private jets and stays at fancy resorts and this kind of thing uh, that they have not disclosed. Um, uh, it's not quite the case that no ethics rules apply to the Supreme Court. There's a federal law called the Ethics in Government Act that requires all federal judges to uh, post annual disclosures about their finances and what they've received and so on. And uh, um, these justices had not made those disclosures. Uh, so stuff keeps coming out and it's a little head snapping. So the question arises, you know, what to do about it? And uh, why doesn't Chief Justice Roberts doing something about it? He actually has very little power. Uh, he's just one vote. He cannot tell these people what to do. Uh, the question is, can Congress tell them what to do? Maybe or maybe not. I mean, maybe that's a separation of powers issue. What the court has always said is we're guided by our internal rules. And, and uh, Roberts uh, put out a, a kind of a memo about those rules in answer to a uh, interrogatory from Congress when he said, I'm not going to appear personally, but here's here's what we do. Um, and the court has always taken the, has always made the argument that whereas codes of ethics apply in the lower courts because there's a higher court that can supervise and implement those, um, there's nobody over us and uh, there cannot be anybody over us. And so Basically, you have to trust us. And, you know, maybe now we're seeing that's not really a very good but answer. That was, but but that, that was never a good plan, was it? I mean, it's not just about uh, individuals at this particular time in 2023 taking lavish gifts and not, and not disclosing them. Probably, Linda, we could have set up a better system a hell of a long time ago, given that ethics considerations on the highest court, given separation of powers, were bound to happen. So there's nothing anybody can do about it? Well, I will. There's a lot of people who want to do things. And even as we're sitting here tonight, I think um, I think Senator Sheldon Whitehouse is giving a, a talk on the Senate floor about legislation that he's putting in. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's a crisis for the court, for sure. For sure it is. And the question is, is there anything the court can do to restore public confidence or is there anything Congress can do to make the court shape up in this regard? And um, I'm not smart enough to see around those corners, but those are the issues that are facing the court and the country right now. Some of uh, what we've heard from defenders of Clarence Thomas say okay, he's got some rich friends who buy him some stuff or take him on vacation. He's, you know, he's not an independently wealthy person. What's wrong with my friends doing something nice for me? Well, so, you know, the, the I won't say ethics, I say ethos of the federal judiciary uh, has been quite counter to that. Uh, you know, because of my line of work, I've known a lot of federal judges over the years. And I happen to be talking on a Zoom call to one of them uh, as the earlier phase of this was breaking. And I said to him kind of jokingly, I said, so have you taken any nice flights on private jets lately and stayed in nice private resorts? And he said to me, 
I don't let somebody buy me a lemonade, right? And, um, uh, you know, Elena Kagan, uh, her high school classmates tried to treat her to some night of theater or something when she was uh, nominated or confirmed. And she said, I can't take the ticket. And I've, I've had lunch with federal judges um, who wouldn't let me pick up the tab, even though we both knew that I could put it in on my expense account and it wasn't going to come out of my pocket. So really, we shouldn't tarnish the the whole judiciary with this. And, and, and I, I tell these anecdotes just to say, this behavior that's come to light is very unusual. This is not standard business for federal judges. And, and so, um, you know, yeah, he has rich friends and, you know, everybody would like to be able to do this kind of thing, but it's, it's, um, it's disturbing and it's very, it, it, it just looks very bad. Is there any congressional recourse if, if say, uh, ethics breaches that go even beyond what we've seen so far ever appear on the court? What what can Congress do? What can anybody do? Well, of course, the, the remedy the Constitution has is impeachment. And federal judges have been impeached over the years, um, maybe 10 or 20 of them, usually when there's been a criminal conviction for bribery or something like that. Um, uh, a, a justice of the Supreme Court has never been impeached, although there was an effort to impeach Earl Warren, impeach William O. Douglas, you know. Um, short of that, um, we don't really have, you know, anything. And as I said, you know, there are very active members of Congress who want to do something. And the question is, in today's Congress, can anybody do anything? But also, um, you know, who would who would say whether that was consistent with the constitutional separation of powers? I hate to say it might be the court itself. So, um, you know, we're 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 kind of stuck. And uh, I, you know, there obviously ought to be more robust and more explicit disclosure rules. Um, transparency is a great boon for understanding and. The next time there's a vacancy, I would think that um, the nominee would be, uh, you know, instructed that here's what we expect of the behavior of somebody in this great position that you've been nominated to, that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, that's sort of all I have to say about it because I yeah. really cannot look around those corners. Uh, speaking of things that that certainly this Congress could never possibly do, but that members of Congress have suggested is, uh, this is a question from Don, if Democrats can elect the needed numbers, would you favor enlarging SCOTUS? Would I personally favor it? Uh, answer is no, I wouldn't. Can you give me more on that? I think we've talked about this in the past. I, I guess I just, I w wonder if you have any any more thoughts on that, that question. Well, I mean, I think it just becomes a tit for tat. And uh you know, the worm turns and the other side gets in and they want to get their people in. And, um, you know, I, I I know a lot of people who totally believe in court expansion. I respect them. They're very smart, thoughtful people. Um, but it's just never struck me as um, as a good way to go. 
Uh, Duncan asks, many of the opinions written in the past couple of years seem to have been blistering in tone directed to the opposition. Any insight as to how well the justices get along in the workplace? I actually have no insight into that. I could pretend to, but I don't like to pretend to know more than I know. Uh, but he's certainly right that um, the kind of um, back and forth, almost name calling in some of these opinions at the end of the term uh, was a little surprising and certainly bespeaks um, a fair amount of tension inside. Um, you know, I'll just say there's a, a sense in which um, they have to, at the end of the day, they have to behave as adults uh, and, and manage to get along in the workplace because they're fated to be sitting next to one another for the rest of their working lives. And you can't get anything done there unless you can get four people to agree with you. Um, so it's not like Capitol Hill where you can kind of be your own little caucus and go up and sulk in the club room or something. Um, you can't on the court. So, uh, they may get awfully annoyed at, in the crunch at the end of the term, but I think they tend to use the summer to sort of regenerate and catch their breath and get back to work for the next term. So I, I hope that's still the case. You you said earlier, uh, much earlier in our conversation, that uh, in in one of the uh, cases in which Justice Roberts sided with uh, the the more liberal bloc, uh, that he he felt as though th this was what the country needed at the time. I guess I'm wondering if, in your view of this Roberts court, he specifically or the court as a whole is looking at public opinion at all and saying. 72% of Americans think this, or 67% of Americans think that. As we decide this, this momentous case, we may be going against a huge part of America at this time. How much do they think about that? Well, I think a good number of them don't think about it at all. Um, I mean, Justice Alito, one thing that was remarkable, as everybody remembers, the Dobbs opinion was leaked uh, two months before it actually came down. And in his draft <clears throat> of the Dobbs opinion that was leaked toward the end, the second paragraph from the end, uh, he says something like, um, we of course have no way of knowing how the political or legal system will respond to what we're doing here. But even if we knew, uh, there is uh, no circumstance under which we could tailor our actions uh, accordingly. That was in the draft. Now, in between the draft and the actual release, as we know, the country exploded over the Dobbs opinion, over the notion that the right to abortion was going to be taken away, to the extent that the court had to put up an eight-foot-tall impenetrable fence around its property. It was that concerned and how upset people were. So when the opinion finally came out, of course, I looked at the end, to see whether Justice Alito had taken any notice of that in the intervening two months. He said exactly the same thing word for word. He didn't change a word. We have no way of knowing. Now that struck me as intellectually dishonest to the point of being, you know, ridiculous. So that's a long answer to your your question. But I, I think I think the Chief Justice is concerned about um how people think about the court, not in looking at polls every Monday and Thursday, but 
I think his strong sense was this is not the moment to basically cut the final legs out from the Voting Rights Act of 1965, one of the great accomplishments of the civil rights movement. And so he he didn't go there. A last thing for you, Linda, what, what should we expect the the next court term will look like? What are the most important cases that they'll be they'll be taking up and what are you watching for? I, you know, just a, a small part of the docket has been set. Um, I know there's some very important administrative law cases kind of following up on all this major question stuff and and um, the relationship between the executive branch and the agencies and Congress. Um, I'm not sure there's one big overwhelming case that people are going to be holding their breath for yet, uh, but there are certainly cases in the pipeline and cases being teed up. So um, I would just say, watch that space. Well, Linda Greenhouse, it is always lovely to talk to you. Thank you for all the insight. Thanks for answering all these questions. And we hope to to do this again, I don't know, this time next year. Sound good? Sounds good. Linda Greenhouse, thank you so much for doing that. And before I let you go, I want to thank everyone who joined us tonight on our Zoom call. Thanks to Gabby Benedictus, who ran the show, to Bruce Putterman, the publisher of the Connecticut Mirror. And look, events like this happen because of people like you that support the Connecticut Mirror. Linda is a supporter. I'm a supporter. I've been involved with the Mirror since the start. If you want to have in-depth, independent, thoughtful news about policy and politics, you need to support that. So go to the Connecticut Mirror website at ctmirror.org and you can click on that big donate button in the upper right-hand corner. If you are watching as part of our contingent from Spotlight PA, thank you so much to all you uh, Pennsylvanians in the audience. By supporting independent, nonprofit, nonpartisan news, you can make sure that the world is covered. The Supreme Court's tonight, but a lot of what's happening at state courts, a lot of what's happening at state houses around America is only covered because of independent folks like the Mirror and Spotlight PA. So please do your part and support it today. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll talk to you again soon.